Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Polly and I almost didn't get married while we were engaged. I don't think I told you I was going to tell the story. Um, while we were engaged, I got invited up to her family's summer home on Lake Michigan, and it was an unseasonably warm July, and being less than an hour from the Upper Peninsula, no one has air conditioning. And so when we attended um, a dinner and dance event at their country club one evening, after a particularly sweltering day, uh, temperatures were easily in the high 80s inside the clubhouse. Now, I had dated Polly long enough by this point to know the dress code for such a soiree, coat and tie. But I am, a fun fact about me, I'm as stubborn as I am pra- pragmatic, pragmatic, and so uh, I hate being told what to do, especially when the rules don't make any sense. And so naturally, when I sat down at the dinner table that evening, I took my coat off and I loosened my tie. Well, I was kindly but immediately informed by her family that uh, men had to keep their jackets on in the clubhouse. And so reluctantly and resentfully, I obliged. Uh, Finally, the dinner finished, and I was relieved to see a few of the men taking their jackets off to head to the dance floor. And so I quickly followed suit. But not long into our dancing, Polly returned from a water break with word from her family that they would really prefer it if I would keep my jacket on. Well, that was enough for me. I left the godforsaken jacket behind. Figure if they love the jacket so much, they can just have the dang thing. And I stormed out, and Polly chased after me and apologized. I informed her in no uncertain terms that if this was the kind of lifestyle she wanted, we could just call off the wedding. Uh, She assured me it wasn't, that she didn't care about putting on airs, about keeping up with the Joneses, but that these were still her family. And she felt caught in the middle, to which I replied, well, if you're still in the middle, I'll make it easy on you. Go back into your family. And I stormed off again. But this time, my mom caught me. And she was on the trip, too, and she had watched this whole thing go down, and she said, you know, Will, I know this isn't your scene. It sounds like it isn't Polly's scene either. She said, and when you're married, you can decide together if you never want to attend another country club event ever again. But like it or not, this is her family scene, and they're important to Polly. So if she's important to you, then they should be too. Now, I think that story serves as a pretty good metaphor for the story that we find in Acts chapter 15 this morning. Coat and tie were, of course, just symptomatic of a much bigger, deeper question facing me 14 years ago, almost to the day. What does it mean for me to join Polly's family? And similarly, the driving question before us in Acts chapter 15 today is, what does it mean for the Gentiles to join Polly? God's family. See, for 2,000 years, Yahweh had a family, 
Israel. And just like any family, belonging to God's family meant living by a certain set of rules and expectations. But then Jesus came along and he changed everything. Or did he? Certainly Jesus opened the family's doors to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. That much has become clear now from Acts chapter 10 through 14. But now the question becomes, do these Gentiles, who have now been included in God's new covenant promises, his new family included in Christ's salvation, do they still have to abide by the old Jewish family rules? And we're going to see three different answers to that question emerge here in Acts 15. First, the Judaizers are going to say, yes, Gentiles must wear the coat and tie, i.e., be circumcised and follow the Old Testament law in order to be included in God's family. That's what it means to be in the family. Second, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are going to say, no, we've left that family, we're starting our own new family, and, and now the rules have changed. Circumcision and the law count for nothing any longer. All that matters now is faith. Burn the old coat and tie. And then thirdly, James is going to speak up, and he's going to say, well, yes and no. And Gentiles don't have to wear the coat and tie, but if they've truly been included in the family, they will want to dress up out of respect and concern for the other family members. So you get the metaphor, Polly's grandparents are the Judaizers. I'm Peter. My, my mom is James. She's the voice of reason. But what, what is at stake here isn't just proper party attire or the fate of one's foreskin. What is at stake here is nothing short of the gospel. The very nature of the gospel and the question of how sinners can be saved, must be saved, is at stake this morning in Acts chapter 15. And so let's read the passage together and examine each of the three arguments more carefully. I would invite you to stand with me as you're able to, respect for the reading of God's word. Words will be on the screen in front. We have Bibles. We'd love to bless you with a Bible this morning. If you don't have one at the info bar, you can grab one. But hear the word of the Lord from Acts 15, verses 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all of the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted to idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, so verse 1 opens... With this, some men came down from Judea, and two questions emerge here right off the bat. Who are these men, and where are they? Where is this taking place? On the latter question, chapter 14, you may remember, concluded last week with Paul and Barnabas back in Antioch, Syria, having returned from their first missionary journey throughout Gentile territory and having successfully converted all these Gentiles who are now at the center of this controversy. But the confusion comes here when Luke writes that some men came down from Judea despite Antioch's being located 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Similarly, in verse 2, we read Paul and Barnabas are appointed to go up to Jerusalem despite its location to the south. The reason is that Jerusalem was located about a half mile above sea level and so no matter No matter which direction you were coming from, you 
always got to travel up to get to Jerusalem. But moving on to the first question then, who are these men from Judea who are teaching the Antiochian brothers that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved? Well, Luke informs us in verse 5 that they are believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. This is the same group in the church that have already butted heads with Peter back in chapter 11, you may remember. After he baptized the very first Gentile convert, Cornelius, and we heard back then that the circumcision party criticized Peter. See, apparently there was something like a two-party system in the early church. There were the conservatives on the right, that's your right, conservatives on the right, the circumcision party, or the Judaizers, who didn't want Christianity to stray too far from their Jewish roots and traditions. And after all, Jesus himself was a Jew throughout his earthly ministry. Jesus prayed to the Jewish God. He observed the Jewish law. He celebrated the Jewish holidays. He was the Jewish Messiah. He called Jewish disciples, and he claimed to come only for the lost sheep of the houses of Israel, Matthew 15. But at the same time, Jesus also said that he fulfilled the law, and that He had other sheep that are not of this fold, and that as the Messiah, the prophets had foretold of Jesus that he would be a light to the Gentiles as well. That's Isaiah 42. And so a second, more progressive party emerged within the church who advocated for a change of the old ways. We'll call them the Grace Party, Circumcision Party, Grace Party. And in verse 2 here, Luke tells us that no small dissension arose between the two parties. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, that word, stasios, dissension, refers to a riot or a revolt. That gives you a sense of just how heated this debate had gotten. But the church knew that Christ had called it to unity, and so they decided to convene a council back in Jerusalem and settle the matter once and for all, the so-called Jerusalem Council, very unoriginal in their names. Well, verse 2 is like the primary election, and so Paul and Barnabas win the nomination to represent the Grace Party from Antioch, and so they're sent out, and along the way, verse 3, they campaign throughout the regions of Phoenicia and Samaria, all the way until they reach Jerusalem in verse 4, where they are welcomed by the church, but then in verse 5, some believers rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise these Gentile converts to the faith and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, before we even uh, dig into their argument and critique it and pick it apart, I want to pause here and, and just quickly highlight two important takeaways for us from the simple fact that the church even called this meeting that they even gathered together to hash all this out. First, I think this is proof that some issues really are worth fighting about. Some issues are worth arguing about. You know, Polly and I, despite our story, do a lot of premarital counseling, and we tell a lot of the couples that we counsel, 98, maybe because of our history, 98% of the arguments you could have in your marriage aren't worth having. And the same holds true in the church as well. That's why Titus 3.9 warns us to avoid foolish controversies, dissensions, and quarrels, for they are unprofitable and worthless. But there's still that 2%. 
the controversies that aren't foolish and useful, the disagreements within the church that are, in fact, necessary for us to resolve for the very sake of our gospel unity. Because if the gospel is the glue that holds the church together, then it has got to be a hill that we are willing to die on as believers. According to Romans 1.16, no gospel, no salvation. And so we've got to have clarity and unity on this issue of the gospel, more so today in the 21st century American world than ever. There's so much gospel confusion this is one of the few things that is worth arguing, even dividing over as a church, the gospel. But second, we should also find encouragement here on the flip side, encouragement in the fact that the early church survived this family feud. In our historical narcissism, you know, we'll sometimes say things like, well, the church today is more divided than ever. And I just want to reassure you this morning that that is not true. It's just not historically true. The church was way more divided in AD 48 at the Jerusalem Council than it is today, and during the Great Schism of 1054, and during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, and during the American Civil War of the 1860s. For 2,000 years now, the church has survived far worse divisions than whatever we may be facing today. And besides, Jesus already promised us that he will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so if any of you have lost sleep over that, like the existential threat to the church, you can just rest easy tonight knowing that the church, the true church, ain't going anywhere. But now returning to the circumcision party of verses 1 through 5, we might outline their argument in this way. Grace plus works leads to salvation. This is the argument of the Judaizers. Jesus plus circumcision and the Old Testament law leads to salvation. Now, again, before we rush to criticize them, let's just at least try and understand and empathize with where they're coming from. For starters, we should note that these Judaizers also believed in the necessity of God's grace. Right? Grace is a part of the equation. Now, while they were indeed Pharisees, they were no longer Jewish Pharisees who believed that they could be saved on their own merit alone. It wasn't works leads to salvation. No, they were now Christian Pharisees who had come to acknowledge their sin. I can't do it on my own, and thus their need for a Savior, Jesus and notice, Luke calls them, in verse 5, believers. They believed in Jesus. They just happened to believe that he expected his followers to continue to observe the Old Testament law as well, that, and that doing so was necessary for salvation. Grace plus works, Jesus plus law, leads to salvation. After all, the Old Testament law itself seemed to call for our perpetual obedience through the generations regarding circumcision in Genesis 17 when God gave circumcision as a right, an ordinance to Abram. God declared, this is my covenant which you shall keep you and your offspring after you. He said, every male among you shall be circumcised. My covenant shall be an everlasting covenant. So again, the onus is on Peter and Paul and Barnabas 
to exposit and figure out, okay, if, if circumcision is an everlasting covenant, how does that fit in with this gospel of grace alone, Christ alone? Regarding the law, in Deuteronomy 5, God had said, Oh, that my people would always fear me and keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Again, that sounds like perpetual obedience to the Old Testament law. And in the Judaizers' defense, their understanding of salvation simply took a page out of the book of every other religion that has ever existed in human history. Right? Every other religion out there says, here are the, humps, the, the hoops you've got to jump through to win God's approval. Here's the coat and tie I want you to put on to be a part of the family. Now, just putting on the coat and tie might not be enough. Perhaps God has still got to be gracious and fill in some of the gaps, forgive some of your sins along the way, but you at least got to meet him halfway or, or at least 10% of the way, Right? I mean, you've got to do something. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Surely we must contribute something to our own salvation. That's their reasoning. Grace plus works. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the 613 Old Testament laws, or at least the 10 big ones. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus sobriety. Jesus plus three Hail Marys and five Our Fathers. This is the way religion works. And the problem with the Judaizers' argument is it's not true. It's not the way salvation works. Grace plus works leading to salvation. It's not biblical. It is not the gospel It is not the good news of Christianity. It's fake news. It's a false gospel. And as Paul is going to counter-argue, a false gospel is really no gospel at all. Jesus affirms the same. He says, if you're standing before a holy God, rest on your own righteousness. That is not good news for you. Matthew 5. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, unless you're perfect, then you don't deserve God and you don't deserve heaven because God's perfect and heaven's perfect. But then Jesus goes on to say that he was perfect because he was God in the flesh, but then he laid down his life willingly on the cross for you to give you and me his righteousness and to take our sin and punishment Instead, so that we might be sanctified, declared righteous, declared holy, and reconciled to God. That is the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you. And all we have to do, all we can possibly do to get God's absolution and his approval is simply believe. Whosoever believes And God's son, Jesus, shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Not whoever believes and is baptized. Not whoever believes and tries their hardest to live by the rules, live by the book. But simply whosoever believes. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace you have been saved 
through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you contributed anything to your salvation, you'd have something to brag about. You don't, so you don't. Galatians 2, 16 through 21 Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Thank God your salvation isn't up to your righteousness. He says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one's perfect. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Consider that. What, What would it say about God the Father if there were any other way that we could be saved, that if we could have saved ourselves, then how horrifying was it that God sent Jesus to the cross? It was unnecessary. If there was any other way to purchase our salvation, anything short of the blood of his own son, it would make God a monster. Or put it this way, what part of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his grace, his undeserved favor, poured out on us, where was it so deficient? Where was it so inadequate, so lacking that Jesus needed your help to fill in the gap? Because that's essentially what we're saying when we posit that Jesus' grace plus our own works equals salvation. We're saying Christ alone isn't enough. I've got to add something to the equation here. No, Paul says, No, Barnabas says, no, Peter says. And their argument, argument number two here in verses 6 through 11, is simply that grace plus faith leads to salvation. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Or as Peter puts it here in verse 7, God made a choice that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and what? Obey it? Look at verse 7. They should hear the word of the gospel and follow it. Is the the gospel a rule to be obeyed? No, it's a message to be received. Hear the gospel and believe, he says. Then verse 9, God made no distinction between us Jews and them Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts. How? By works? Verse 9, no, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so Peter concludes his argument here against the Judaizers. He says, why are you placing a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He says, we've tried following the law for for 2,000 years now. None is righteous. No, not one. No one's perfect enough to earn heaven on their own merit. Paul portrays the law similarly in Galatians 3. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. He says, but now Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through faith. So Paul goes on to argue, Galatians 5, we can just keep going with the, the biblical support for this gospel of grace. Galatians 5, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Paul says, you gotta pick. You're either trusting in Jesus or you're trusting in your own circumcision to save you. Which is it? 
He says, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You're cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. He says, but in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything but only faith working through love. Or to sum it up even simpler, Romans 11.6, feel free to write all these passages, glorious gospel passages down, go back and revisit them on your own later. Romans 11.6 sums it up even simpler. If salvation comes by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. It's a contradiction of terms. They're mutually exclusive. See, grace is a free gift that you don't deserve. By definition, that's what grace is. Work by definition, is something you do in order to earn a paycheck. So it can't be both. They're mutually exclusive. You, you either earned your salvation or you don't deserve it. The minute you pay for it, it's no longer a gift. It's a purchase, right? God's word says, quit trying to pay your own way. You don't have a dime to your name, spiritually speaking. Even the best of your good deeds, Isaiah 64, 6, are like filthy rags compared to the holiness that God deserves and demands of us. No, our salvation costs nothing less than the perfect righteousness of a perfect God himself. And praise God, that is exactly the price that Jesus died to pay for you on your behalf. So that he might give you salvation as an undeserved gift simply to be received by faith. Faith is opening the gift. Receive Jesus and you will be saved. It's the good news this morning. Now, those of us who are well acquainted with the gospel, those of us who love the gospel, may be surprised to discover that the passage doesn't end there in verse 12, or sorry, verse 11. In verse 11, Peter boldly declares, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus alone, just as the Gentiles will. He drops the mic. Actually, he hands it off to Paul and Barnabas in verse 12 so that they can back him up. They can support his gospel with a bunch of stories from the road, from their mission journeys, all the signs and wonders that God had worked among the Gentiles to bring them salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And as good Protestants, we might expect the story to end there. But it doesn't. As a matter of fact, we're only a third of the way through the passage. And I'm going to cover the last 23 verses here pretty quickly, not because they aren't important, but because I think they can be summed up pretty succinctly. So now the, the circumcision party, the Judaizers, have made their case. The grace party, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they've made their case. And now, in verse 13, after they finish speaking, James stands up. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with the guy, so he knew Jesus better than anyone. And for that reason, James also, by this point, had become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so when James speaks, it carries weight. He speaks with authority. People listen. And here is his judgment on the matter in a nutshell. 
Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are right, but their argument is incomplete. James essentially sides with the grace party. He says it is by Christ's grace alone that we have been saved through faith alone. And so he says in verse 19, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He says, Peter is right. Don't burden them with the yoke of the law. Paul is right. Christ freed us from that burden. But then James adds, verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, it's important. Don't miss this. James doesn't add or else. He doesn't give them an ultimatum. He doesn't command the Gentiles to avoid idolatry, immorality, strangle bloody food as a prerequisite for salvation. As in, if you don't follow these rules, you can't be saved. You're outside the community of faith. He doesn't say that. What James affirms is that while it is faith alone that saves us, saving faith is never alone. I'll say that again because it may sound like I'm splitting hairs. The nuance here is crucial and it's imperative that we get this right as believers. Faith alone saves us, but true saving faith is never alone. James says, the grace party is right. We're saved by grace through faith, but the circumcision party is right about at least one thing. They are right to be concerned with our works, our actions, how we live our lives. That still matters as Christians, just not in the same way that it used to. When you were Pharisees, enslaved to the law, James says, now your works are no longer something you strive to do to earn God's approval. Rather, they are the natural byproduct of having already won his approval. It's because you've been saved by grace through faith that you now in response to Christ's glorious work on your behalf ought to live to serve him. James says, actually you can now live for him. That's the thing. Hebrews eleven sixteen tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. But with faith, the fruit of faith is not only salvation. Faith is the gift that just keeps giving. With faith, you not only get salvation, you also get the Holy Spirit as well. God's very own Spirit living inside us who now empowers us to live for him, to do the works that God has called us to do and created us to do, but which we were formerly unable to do without God himself at work within us. And so here's what it looks like. Here's the James's amendment to Paul, Peter, Barnabas' argument. Grace plus works leads to salvation. Grace plus faith leads to salvation. Yes, but incomplete. According to James and according to God in his word, grace plus faith leads to salvation and works. This should come as no surprise to those of us familiar with the book of the Bible that bears his name, that James was inspired by God to write, where James asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
Can that faith save him? For James, the answer is clear. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But it makes all the difference in the world which side of the equation the works are on. It's not grace plus faith plus works lead to salvation. In that case, you nullify Christ's grace. Rather, it's our faith in Christ's grace necessarily resulting in our salvation and our good works. The, the, the metaphor image that uh, my, my predecessor here, Pastor Gary, used once that has always stuck with me, I thought was so good, was that work, works is like the smoke coming out of a chimney telling you that there's a fire lit inside the house. Right? It's, it's the proof that, that, that there's a fire there. Now, to, to continue the metaphor and play it out a little bit, can you do good works and not be saved? Absolutely. The house may be on fire. Right? That's not good. What you want is a nice controlled fire in the chimney. The, the whole thing could be on fire, so... You know, there could be smoke for wrong reasons. But if you don't see any smoke coming out of the chimney, you know, this is, uh, don't give me anything about smokeless fireplaces or whatever. This is, just <laughs> please play along. If you don't see any smoke coming out the chimney, salvage, true saving faith has not occurred. Unless you think that Paul and James are in disagreement, I would just point out that Paul agrees with James what does Paul say right after that famous declaration of our having been saved by grace through faith? In Ephesians 2, verse 10, he says, We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. He says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus our sermon title this morning, Saved by Grace through Faith for Works. Paul concurs with James. We are saved to serve, blessed to be a blessing. Uh, there's so much more we could say about this and about verses 13 through 35 in particular. I could point out James's skill and diplomacy here, his tact in unifying the circumcision and grace parties by appealing to both of them. He addresses them all as brothers in verse 13, which is a nod to the grace party. We're all one in Christ. But then he calls Peter Simeon in verse 14, which seems bizarre until you realize that's just an easy way to placate the Judaizers by using Peter's Hebrew name. James further validates their Jewish roots by referencing the words of the prophets in verse 15. But then he, the specific prophecy he quotes from Amos 9 foretells not only the rebuilding of the tent of David, the nation of Israel, but also the rebuilding of all the Gentiles who were called by my name as well. We could point out how they strategically chose one Jew and one Greek, Judas and Silas, to go deliver the council's decision to the church in Antioch, but... In closing here, I simply want to draw our attention to two final points from which we can glean two final practical applications as we go. The first is we should note that the four laws that the Gentiles are exhorted to observe here as a response to their new faith in Christ are all in deference to their Jewish brothers and sisters in the church for whom idolatry, immorality, bloodied meat from strangled animals, all those things would have presented stumbling blocks for a Jewish believer to fellowship with these new Gentiles. And so even Paul, the champion of the grace party, 
Paul will say in Romans chapter 14, I know that meat sacrificed to idols is no big deal because I, Paul, know that idols are fake. But he says, if it's going to cause my brother or sister with a weaker conscience to stumble, I will gladly abstain from eating that meat. It's the same rationale that James is using here in giving the restrictions that he proposes. He says, Moses is read, verse 21, every Sabbath in the synagogues and in every city. James says, even in Gentile majority towns and villages and churches, there are still going to be some Jews who might get hung up on these violations of the Old Testament law. And so both for the sake of your fellowship with Jewish believers in the church, as well as for the sake of your witness, your ministry to Jewish non-believers, the Jews in the synagogue, in the cities, wherever the churches crop up, he says, just, just don't go there if that's going to put a stumbling block up. And so for us, practical application this morning, same principle holds true. Do we go above and beyond like Paul, who said, Paul said, to the Jews I became like a Jew in order to win Jews. He said, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to do whatever it takes, abstain from whatever might offend someone else, for the sake of the gospel. May that be true of us today, church. And lastly, please note the response of the church in Antioch in verse 31 here. Upon hearing the council's decision, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I get these new proposed rules, exhortations. You should obey at least these four things, and they rejoice. They rejoiced in the opportunity, not the obligation, but the opportunity to be obedient to Christ, to demonstrate their salvation through their works. And I would just exhort us this morning, church, God still calls us today to be holy as I am holy. Will we joyfully pursue holiness, godliness, in humble obedience, trusting that God's ways are better than ours. And when we inevitably fall short, will we rest in Christ alone, in his grace alone, by faith alone, by which alone we can be saved.